0: following audio is from fathom church in downtown littleton colorado more information about fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org well hey ten forty-five. i promise i won't call you the 11 today uh, i don't know how i'm going to handle this i'm type a and so 15 minute iterations do not jive with my personality type I pushed for 9 and 11, but it just didn't happen. So 8.45, 10.45, and everybody who's not type A is like, oh, finally, you know, something that's not a right angle. If it's not a right angle, it's a wrong angle, right? Yeah, thank you. Okay. (laughs) Hey, uh, I do have something that has nothing to do with anything, but I want to share it with you anyway, because I'm the pastor and I can do that. Here's what happened. My daughter, about two or three months ago, uh, Marcy and I actually got a chance to uh, pray with her to receive Christ, which is a really exciting thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We were, I mean, she's a PK, so we're nervous, right? Like, uh, if you've been there, you know it. But but we prayed to receive Christ with her. And so yesterday, I took her on a little daddy-daughter date. We went to Mardell Bookstore's. Uh, which is the only remaining Christian bookstore because of Amazon. So thank you, Amazon, uh, for devoiding us of really odd Christian things. Uh, But we went to Mardell, and we were there to purchase her first adult Bible, her first big kid Bible. So uh, we went, and the only requirement she had was that it was pink. I mean, it could, have been, it could have been Old King Jimmy, you know? It could have been really hard for her to comprehend, and she would have been fine as long as it was pink. So we looked at about 12 different pink Bibles. The market for pink Bible is wide, just so you know, okay? There's plenty of them. We ended up with a nice one. We got her name, like, pressed into that, right? So Harper Martin is on the Bible. Uh, she's in the Bible, apparently. And then the rest of the day, uh, she was carrying that thing around the house. She was looking at it. She was pretending to read it. She can't really read all of it yet, but she was digging into it. But the other thing is that my daughter is a sinner, okay? Yes. Um <laughs> And part of her sin nature is causing her to buck a little bit when it's time for bed. She like pushes back when it's bedtime at this point in her development. And last night she used something that I didn't expect her to use. Uh, it was bedtime. And I said, Harper, it's time for bed. And she said, Daddy, please read me the Bible. <laughs> and I said, No, it's time. For bed. We've been looking at that thing all day. It's time for bed. She says, I can't believe you won't let me read my Bible. And I said, you are shady. You are shady. So I opened it to Leviticus 20, where it says, when children disobey their parents, they should be stoned to death. And I put her to bed. Put her to bed. Safe for the whole family, okay? That had nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted you to know that little celebration that happened in the Martin household this weekend. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please open it up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. I'm Pastor Chris, if you didn't know him, that, and uh, welcome to Fathom. If you're online with us, we're glad you're with us. Please open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 11. If you didn't bring one, you can borrow one of our hardback black ones under every chair. That's on page 233 in those hardback black ones. You can open a phone or a tablet. 1 Samuel 11, we're going to do this whole chapter this morning. As you're turning there. Uh, Anybody familiar with the Babylon Bee in here? Babylon Bee. Okay, we got some lovers here. Uh, Babylon Bee is a a, a satirical Christian blog which pokes fun at evangelical culture. And can we be honest, it must be poked fun at, (laughs) right? It's good for us to make fun of ourselves, but it's also good for us to just point out some of the absurdities around evangelical culture. Today, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So I Google searched in the Babylon Bee all their articles on the Holy Spirit. Here are my top four I'll put them up on the screen. Holy Spirit appears at Baptist service, asked to sit in overflow room. Uh, That that could be said true, I think, if you're a Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, pretty much any non-charismatic denomination. This is, hey, go to another room, Holy Spirit. Here's the second one. Holy Spirit, uh, outpouring of Holy Spirit coincides with key change. That's for my musician friends. Uh, You would know this one. Uh, I sing for joy at the world, right? Like that's where it happens. It's the key change and the Holy Spirit shows up. This one's really good. The third one, um, Holy Spirit empowers man to make it through Christian movie. They're really bad. They're really bad. Miracles do happen. Yes, yes. And then this one's my favorite one. Holy Spirit unable to move through congregation as fog machine breaks because how do you know if it's here, <laughs> right? That article actually gets really funny. I'll read it from you to you. Uh, this is what it says in the article. It was horrific, one parishioner recalled. One moment I was caught up in the spirit, worshiping the living God of all creation before his throne, and the next I was brought plummeting back down to earth. The mood was ruined. <laughs> so uh, I told the, the, the first service, we might need to get some foggers just so that we know that the Holy Spirit's here. Um, when I talk the Holy Spirit, okay, even here in our little church, when I speak about the Holy Spirit, I know there are a lot of different reactions, okay? I know that you guys have different backgrounds, we're coming from different places, so like there's some charismatics in here, I don't know if you know that, we got some charismatics in our church, okay, and they're like, that's right, come on, it's about time, pastor, I'm ready, I've got my tambourine, I got my flag, I got my hanky, I'm ready to roll, let's get this going, and it's like, okay, easy, <laughs> easy on the charismatic side, okay, uh, there are some in our church who are com- coming from more reserved denominations and they said, Holy Spirit. And their response is, I knew it. I knew there was something weird about this church. I walked in a five minutes late. Someone was lifting their hands, distracting the rest of the congregation from worship. And it's like, okay, just ease up. You're getting your dockers a little ruffled. And the Catholic, my ex-Catholic friends in here are like, "What? who are you talking about? The ghost? Is that what you, uh, it's just a, The the Holy Spirit is a contentious point. It's actually fascinating because the Holy Spirit, one of the things that the Holy Spirit was given to the church for was to unify the church, and frankly, it may be one of the most contentious doctrines in the entire New Testament. So uh, we're going to talk about the Spirit today because in our chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find a really interesting passage about Saul, King Saul, and it teaches us something about the Holy Spirit. Now, let me catch you up if you are newer with us or you've missed a couple of weeks. Here's where we're at in 1 Samuel 7, okay? God's people want a king. There has been no king in Israel. They've been judged by what are called judges for the last number of years. And now they want a king because they want to be like all the other nations. That's what they said. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. Problem with that is that God was supposed to be Israel's king. God was supposed to be their king, and so in essence, when they ask for a king, or actually they demand a king is what the text says, in essence, what they're saying is, God, we don't want you, we want something else. We, actually, we kind of want you, we just want you plus a king. We want to be like everyone else, and so God is going to give them what they want as a bit of a judgment, as a bit of a divine spanking, as it were, and so enter Saul, Saul, the first king of Israel Saul uh, is an obscure farmer He's the son of Kish, a farmer Uh, He is not really qualified for the job But we find out that he is tall And he is handsome which is apparently all you need to be the first king of Israel. You gotta be taller than everybody and you gotta look the part. And so from the outside, he looks really good. He looks like he can play the role of king. Um, and so the, the, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul privately, telling him that he's going to be the king. And then last week we read in chapter 10 that, that, that uh, Saul was proclaimed publicly as the king last week. Uh, But we saw even at the end of our chapter last week that there are still some naysayers. There are still some people who look at Saul and they say, ain't no way this guy is cut out to be king. And oh, by the way, Saul doesn't even think he should be king. Remember, he was hiding out in the baggage rather than being proclaimed as king last week. So nobody thinks this guy's fit for the job except for God, apparently Uh, But God is doing something. So that's where we're going to pick it up today in 1 Samuel chapter 11. So chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. Follow along in your text if you can. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Verse three, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. This is the setting for our chapter today. Okay, Uh, we start by being introduced to Nahash the Ammonite, a lesser known uh, Bible character, but uh, Nahash is a pagan king. He is not an Israelite, he's an Ammonite. These are arch enemies, as it were, of the Israelites. And he is terrorizing one of the tribes of Israel who reside in a place called Jabesh-Gilead, okay? Now, uh, what's interesting is instead of going to war, the people of Jabesh-Gilead say, we wanna make a treaty we want to make a treaty rather than fight you, Nahash. So give us terms of a treaty. And Nahash is happy, happy to give them terms. They would be spared, but Nahash would scoop out every man's right eye. And did anybody catch that they consider it? Yeah. They're like, huh, one eye? I mean, how bad can it be? Like, that's essentially what they're doing. Uh, but there's more going on in the text here, okay? Okay historically, it's not just the loss of an eye that was kind of grotesque and painful. It's, in fact, every man in that culture would have been unfit for military service and thus would have become a slave or a servant at this point because the way that they did military fighting at that point is they would carry a sword in their right hand and they would carry a shield with their left and that shield would normally cover over their left eye causing them to rely completely on their right eye as they're doing battle. So if none of the men had right eyes, they were effectively useless in battle and would have been enslaved. So it's more than just plucking of an eye. It's actually causing great, the text even says this, causing great shame on all these men in Israel. And so Nahash is so sure of himself that even when they're like, hey, give us a week to see if we can find somebody who might come fight you. He's like, go for it. He is so sure of himself and the weakness of God's people that he's like, I'll give you a week before I start scooping eyes. That's the setup for our passage today. Look at verses four and five. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that's King Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Verse five, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. So so the news reaches Saul, King Saul, and, and, and did you notice what he was doing? It says he was behind the oxen. He's coming back from the field. Saul is farming again. He's back Farming. Remember, he's been privately anointed by Samuel as king. He has now been publicly declared by Samuel as king. And yet, bro, is not doing anything king-like at this point. He, the first thing he does as a king is he goes back to the farm and starts tilling the ground again. This is again reminiscent of him hiding out in the baggage last week. And again, no one believes Saul is up to this task. Not even Saul. Saul doesn't even want the job. Nobody believes in this guy until something really important happens in verse six. Look at verse six. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. This is the crux verse in this passage. Verse six is the crux. The writer of this book is showing what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit rushes upon Saul and it takes a shy, hesitating farmer and is gonna make him for the first time function as the king of Israel. This is the difference that the Spirit makes in this guy's life. Saul is now going to go on to deliver Israel from Nahash. We'll, we'll, We'll walk through that passage, but it is made very clear that salvation does not come because Israel has a king. Salvation comes because Israel's king has God's spirit. That's what's made really clear here. It's not Saul. It's the spirit residing in Saul that brings about the salvation of God's people. So before we explore this text a little bit deeper, I just want to take a pause and do a bit of theology work around the Holy Spirit, okay? Because we're coming from so many different places. Let's do a little theology work. When we talk about the Holy Spirit as, as Protestant, evangelical, conservative Christians, whatever you want to call us, normally there are two polar opposites where we err when it comes to the Holy Spirit. First, Some will treat the Holy Spirit like some sort of disembodied force or feeling or emotion that like only the weird Pentecostals get. Like none of us can figure this guy out except for those crazy tambourine people. And they've really got him figured out. But he's just some force, some mystical thing that's kind of over here doing his thing. Or that's the first error. Or another error on the polar opposite side of the spectrum is we treat the the Holy Spirit like a doctrine to pay mental assent to that we believe because the Bible tells us to believe, but he's not really doing anything. It's just something we believe because we believe it. It's like he's a doctrine only, or he's this mystical kind of force, feely ghost thing that freaks us out. But but I just want to say biblically, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And of course, I am referring to what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. So we have to do a little work here because I realize the doctrine of the Trinity is an exceptionally difficult doctrine to understand. It's just exceptionally difficult. But but I'll I'll boil it down to to these phrases. This is how I would define the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God eternally existing in three persons. That's kind of the the summation of the doctrine. One God who has existed eternally in three distinct persons. So let me bash some myths here, okay? Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity isn't that there are three gods. There are not three gods like a little God family and they're having little God babies. That's not how this works, okay? That's actually, in fact, polytheism, and We are monotheists, okay? There's not like a little God triad up there. It's not three different gods. That's a heresy. That's a heresy. Um, second, it's not one God in three different modes. Like one God existing in different modes. Like God keeps changing costumes or something, right? Like in the Old Testament, he's just angry father God who's like causing judgment and plagues. Then he gets sick of that and gets some diapers, comes as Jesus, it's the son, Right? Once Jesus dies and is resurrected and ascends to heaven, then it's like activate spirit mode and then the spirit shows up. Like that's, it's like there's modes. No, that's not actually the doctrine of the Trinity. That's actually known as uh, another heresy uh, called modalism or, or uh, sabalianism. That, that's why I went to seminary is to learn those two words, okay? Um, <laughs> but that's not what we mean by the doctrine of the spirit. And the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not this is the one that we treat, I think, mo- most often. It's not like the force in Star Wars. And I know I said last week I would only use one Star Wars reference <laughs> a year, and I just broke my own rule. But, but a lot of people think of the spirit like they think of the force, like it's just something I've got to channel, and then I can move things with my mind and, like, beat people with a lightsaber. I don't know. That's, actually, that's another heresy called Socianism. Like it's, it's not, the spirit isn't just some force that's a part of God, but he is in fact a distinct person in the triune Godhead. The Trinity is one God eternally existing as three persons. We have to have that as foundation before we start talking about the spirit, okay? So now that's who the spirit is. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is God, but then within the Trinity, the Holy Spirit does some things that are really distinctive. Each person of the Trinity is distinctive. And so I could spend weeks and months, frankly, talking about all that the Spirit does. But what I wanna do is look at our passage today because the rest of the passage shows us two distinct things that the Holy Spirit does in Saul's life, which I think carry over into the life of the Christian. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at verses seven through 11 and we're gonna whoop Nahash, okay? And we're gonna see what we learn about the Spirit. So look at me, look with me, verses seven through Through 11. So Saul took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers, who, the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad because they didn't have to rip out their eye. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Let me make my first point about what the spirit does here. The Holy Spirit empowers for service. He empowers Saul for service of God's people. Now, remember, here's why this is an important point. Because we're talking about Saul. Okay, Saul from the smallest tribe of Israel. He even says from the smallest clan within that small tribe of Benjamin. That's who we're talking. We're talking about Saul here, the donkey searcher. All right. The, the one who, when, when he starts prophesying, the people are like, is Saul also among the prophets? Essentially saying, you gotta be kidding me. Saul's doing this? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about Saul, the guy hiding in the baggage, farming rather than ruling. That's who we're talking about. But now listen, when Saul, the scared farmer, is filled with the Holy Spirit, everything changes. Everything changes in this guy's life. He is empowered for the service that God has called him to. He is no longer Saul of Kish, a son of Kish, but now for the first time we see King Saul. This is the king. So he cuts some oxen up into pieces. Praise the Lord, right? Having a barbecue. That's what he's doing. Sorry, PETA, right? He sends out, essentially the the, the little oxen chop thing is to send out an invitation and a warning to the rest of Israel. Hey, get over here. We got some brothers we got to protect, Okay, they muster, and then they strike the Ammonites so hard that it says, the text says that no two of them were left together. I mean, it's a decisive victory for this brand new king. The Spirit empowers them for the service. And listen, if you're a Christian in here, the Holy Spirit empowers you too for the same service. Notice it wasn't for Saul's benefit, it was actually for others' He is empowered to serve others. And when we talk about the spirit giving spiritual gifts, uh, we talk about this for the building up or for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the church, okay? Now, I did a whole bunch on this uh, when we preached First Corinthians two years ago about spiritual gifts. So I'm not gonna talk all about that. You can go back and listen if you'd like on that. But, but, but the spirit, the same spirit that's in Saul is the same spirit that empowers you with gifts to serve your brothers and sisters, Now, I want to to, to point us back to a verse in John 14 where where Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I'll put this up on the screen. This is John 14, 12. This is what it says. This is Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, this is Jesus in the context of Sending the Holy Spirit saying that empowered by the Holy Spirit, we would do greater things than even he did. Does that sound absurd to anybody else? I mean, it, to me, it sounds completely absurd. Like anybody in here want to make the claim today that they've done greater things than Jesus? I don't want to. All right. Anybody walked on water recently? No? Listen, if I could walk on water, it would be our primary church growth strategy. I would seriously stop preaching. I would put a little pool here. People would show up in droves every Sunday to see me walk across water and give their life to the Lord of the guy, Chris, who can walk on water. I I mean, we'd be a huge church. Be a mega church, water walking church, okay? Anybody feed a multitude recently? And I don't mean like start a catering business, okay? Like multiply your Chipotle burrito and gather 12 baskets afterwards. Anybody done this? Certainly not, right? Anybody ever cast out a demon? Now you may have done that. I haven't. The closest I got was I sent a seventh grader home from youth camp once. It's as close as I've gotten. That's as close as I got that one. What does Jesus mean by this? What does Jesus mean, will do greater things than he? Well, he means that by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it's, it, it'll make it like we've got him with us. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, says, I'm gonna give you the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, and it will be better for you to have him because it'd be like you having me with you, every moment of every day, every place that you go, 2.3 billion Christians filled with Jesus' spirit. And that'd be better. And that'd be better. Can you imagine that? If every Christian was walking in step with the spirit as if they had Jesus Christ right there with him? Can you imagine what this would be like? You're at a party, you run out of chips, bam, multiply those chips, party goes on. Right? You get the Rona, boom, Jesus just zaps that virus away. No more quarantines, no more masks. We're good. Right? You come home, your dog, you find your dog dead. Jesus is there, boom, he resurrects the dog. Fido's walking around. Get home. Find your cat dead on the carpet. Boom, Jesus digs a hole with you. I think Jesus feels the same way about cats that I do. (laughs) I can't prove it in the text, but listen, having the Holy Spirit empowering you is like having Jesus with you. Why is it greater? Because it means that there are, and and I use this number, 2.3 billion professing Christians in the world today. That means there's 2.3 billion people embodied by the Holy Spirit who could be an outpost for gospel ministry, if they would walk in it, if they would step into it, that's why it's greater. It's not one dude in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. It's all of us empowered with the Spirit. That's what it's like when the Holy Spirit empowers for service. You do some really great things with your spiritual gifts for the service of those around you. So that's the first point, okay? The Spirit empowers us for service. But my second point, I think is just as important, maybe even more so, okay? Uh, And so we're gonna finish our text out. Let's look at verse 12 through 15, 1 Samuel 11, verses 12 to the end. Then the people said to Samuel, so this is after Saul just whips the Amalekites. I mean, the Ammonites, one of those ites, okay? Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, Saul shall reign over us, Bring, uh, shall Saul reign over us, bring those men that we may put them to death. So they're referring to last week when Saul is publicly proclaimed as the king and some people are like, is this guy gonna really do this? Who's Saul? Now these people are like, hey, bring them out here. We wanna put those ones to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to all the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So this moment here where they renew the kingdom, this is like inauguration day, okay? Saul has been voted on, right? He's been anointed privately. He's been publicly affirmed. But this is like inauguration day. This is like, hey, we really think this guy actually can be the king. And I love how this story ends with this, I think it's a silly, funny little ending here. I think it's actually very silly, but very realistic. Because once the people realize how legit this spirit-empowered Saul is, They like jump on his bandwagon. They're all in. It's like Super Bowl Sunday. They're like, we're Cincinnati fans, right? Where did all these fans come from? You're like, oh, it's because he made the Super Bowl. That's what's happening here. Okay? like all these people, they're like, hey, where are those worthless fellows from last week? Get them out here. Let's kill them. We love Saul, right? It's funny in this moment, but it's here that I'll make my other point about what the Holy Spirit does because yeah, he empowers us for service, but here's the point too. The Holy Spirit empowers for sanctification. He empowers for service, but then he empowers for sanctification. And sanctification is a big theological word that just means maturing, growing up, becoming more of who God wants you to be, sanctifying, being sanctified. The Holy Spirit empowers for sanctification. Now, let me make my point. Um, Saul in this moment as king had every right to respond to these people saying, let's kill those guys to say, you're right. Let's do it. I am the real deal. I am the king. Forget about that baggage stuff. Forget about the farming stuff. I really am pretty great. I showed you kill those naysayers. And listen, that ain't too far From Saul's character, as we're gonna see in the following chapters of this book. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I showed you guys. He doesn't exact his revenge in this moment. Here's exactly what he says Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This is so far outside of Saul's character. Is Saul the kind of character? Who likes to give credit to somebody else when he is successful? <laughs> We're gonna see this in the, later in this book. Okay, he extends mercy to those men and he gives God credit for working salvation. This is very likely the most mature that we will ever see Saul. This is the high water line in Saul's maturity in his entire life. We've seen this hesitancy that he's had to step into what God has for him and the character issues are just gonna keep piling up as we continue in this book. But right now, in this moment, we are seeing great self-control and restraint from this guy. There are marks of maturity in his life, of God growing him up, of God sanctifying him. And note that it's all because the spirit rushed upon him. Saul's not mustering this maturity from somewhere deep within. We've seen nothing to evidence that. But the spirit shows up. He's a different guy. Now, here's how it applies to us. If you are a Christian in here, I say that if, okay, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you have that same Holy Spirit living in you. I've already said this, but that means that you have been empowered, not only for service, but for sanctification. Let me show you some verses that show that you have the same spirit, okay, Old and New Testament. Joel chapter 2, 28 says this of us. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is afterward as in after the Messiah. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophecy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. New Testament, okay? The apostle Peter in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost says this after he's preached, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John 15, these are Jesus words when he's talking again about sending the helper. He says this, but when the helper comes, that's the spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus is gonna send this spirit and then Acts 1.8 says this, this is my favorite one, but you will receive power. You're empowered. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You'll receive power to go and proclaim all that has happened to you. Here's the point. If you are a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God, the third person of the triune Godhead lives in you. He is rushed upon you at your conversion and he resides in you to this day. Now, I want you to know something that's really important here because I think most of us would agree with that. Most of us would agree with that doctrinally. But the way that the Spirit worked back in Saul's day is not the exact same way that the Spirit works in our day, but so many of us treat him as if he does. Let me explain this. In the Old Testament, like we just read in 1 Samuel 11, okay? When the Spirit rushes upon someone like he did Saul here, it is a wildly rare thing. It doesn't show up a whole lot, actually, in our Old Testament, okay? In fact, the, the few times that it did happen in the Old Testament, it only happened to prophets, priests, and kings. It would never happen to a regular run-of-the-mill Israelite. Prophets, priests, and kings, and the Spirit would show up for some particular reason, for some particular moment, for some particular feat, and then the Spirit would leave that person. The spirit came and it went and it only happened a few times as if the spirit was reserved for some sort of like elite moment and elite person. But now listen, that is not how it works anymore. After the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two and the falling of the Holy Spirit on God's people, the the belief now is that every genuine believer in Christ has that same spirit that rushed upon Saul and he does not leave. So Psalm 51, where David said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is not an adequate prayer for the believer in Christ. If you are a genuine follower of Christ, he will not take his spirit from you. You don't have to ask him. The spirit seals you as an adopted son or daughter to the King but listen, practically many evangelicals treat the spirit as if he works like that Old Testament version. We think that the Holy Spirit is for some sort of super elite Christian, for the charismatics who are just a little bit kooky, for the seminarians who are just kooky around Greek, right? Like we think that the spirit is something that gets dispensed to only certain individuals, but that is not it's just simply untrue. Biblically it's untrue. You are empowered for service. If you are in Christ, you are empowered for service. That means you are far more powerful than you know. I don't have to pretend it's it's not because of you It's because of the spirit that lives in you. It's not because of Saul. It's because the spirit of God empowers Saul. This is true of you. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are empowered for sanctification. You are empowered for, he has come upon you, listen, to change you, to mature you, to grow you. I mean, golly, I say this all the time. You don't have to keep doing the things that you used to do because you're not the same person that you used to be because you've got the Spirit. I heard Chandler say this years ago. I'll just steal it straight from him. You ever hear a Christian um, describe themselves by saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, right? I, I mean, I've said this. You may have said this, heard this. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Partly true. Partly true, right? Yes, you were a sinner. Yes, you were saved by grace. But if you are in Christ, your primary identity is no longer sinner. You are a saint. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of God. You are no longer primarily identified as a sinner. You might still sin. In fact, listen, you're gonna sin and you're gonna work the rest of your life to put those things to death, but that is not your primary identity anymore. You are no longer primarily a sinner. You're a child of God. If you are in Christ, listen, you're not stuck in your sins anymore. You might be sitting in them, but you're not stuck there like you were before the Holy Spirit filled you. You're not stuck there. You've got the Spirit. You've got Jesus with you always. You don't have to be addicted to pornography anymore. I talk with people all the time. I just can't get out of this. Listen, you might be choosing to sit there It might be the fight of your life. But listen, you are not stuck there. You've got the spirit. He breaks those chains. It might take all the rest of your life to work through that, but he will break, but you're not stuck there. You struggle with anger or or anxiety or, or fears. And I'm not talking like chemical things, like there's chemical things going on, but I'm just saying like, you don't have to be ravaged by your fear anymore. You might have lots of work to do with a counselor or a therapist. You might have a lot of work to do with with, with, um, even even medications and things like that. But listen, you're not a slave to your fears anymore because you're a slave to Christ. You've got the Spirit in you. You don't have to keep doing the things that you used to do because you're not that same person anymore. In fact, there's another person living in you, the third person of the Trinity. Church, God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can put our sins to death. Before you were saved, you had no other option but to sin. Now that you're saved and dwelt by the Spirit, you have the choice to say no. The Holy Spirit's power can lead you to go and sin no more. Not perfectly, all right? Again, not perfectly, but progressively. That's what we call sanctification. So here's where I want to land, okay? Uh, Here's where I want to end. This is like the big takeaway from the morning, okay? Here's what I want to say. I want you to start walking with the Spirit. If you're in Christ, right? If you are a Christian, then you have the Spirit in you. And I want you to start thinking about what it means to walk with Him. To walk in Him because you've been empowered. You have power. The power has come upon you. If you are in Christ, you have his power, empowered for service, empowered for sanctification. If if you're a Christian, you have that, but you you have to walk in it. You can neglect it. You can grieve him. You can reject it, but, but you have the choice to walk in the Spirit. Now, listen, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're online with us, you're not a, a believer in Christ with us, man, the invitation to you is come on in. Right? You want to be filled with the Spirit? It happens right now. How does it happen? You pray to receive Christ as your salvation, as your Lord, as your Savior, and the Bible says you will be filled. The Spirit of God will rush upon you. Now, you might not chop up no oxen today, but you'll have the Ghost. You'll have the ghost. The ghost will be in you, so live like it. Y'all, this is what I want for us. I want us to have this front row seat to the power of God, moving among the people of God in unexplainable ways. I ain't saying we all getting tambourines and getting crazy in here. I'm just saying like maybe there's a little bit more crazy we can get. I think we can ratchet that up. He wants us to do incredible things by his power. He wants us to become incredible people by his power. And he will, not get, he will not hold you back from anything he has called you to. He has empowered you through the Holy Spirit to do everything that he has called you to be in the text. I want us to step into that. This is what you get when you think of the Holy Spirit as a person, not as a force and not as a doctrine, but as Jesus with you. So do you know Him like this? You know him as a person. Have you ever related to him this way? Have you ever talked to him like that? Have you ever walked that way? Really, are you experiencing his power? Have you let him pour his love over you? Have you let him move inside of you? Have you felt him? He's a person. He's a relationship. It's not an it. If you aren't doing this right now, This is what the church is here for. If you don't know, when I say walk in the spirit, if you don't know how to do that, that's why God gives us the body of Christ because the staff and the elders, the members of this church, everybody around you, we all want to be walking in the spirit more and more and we want to encourage one another in this more and more. This isn't like go out and do this by yourself. This is like, get in here. Let's walk in the spirit together. We're with you in this. I'm with you in this. My prayer is that here at Fathom, many of us would begin a new season of our lives right now. We'd walk in the spirit for service and for sanctification. Love you, church. Let's pray together. Father, it is a a great joy to read a seemingly obscure passage about a seemingly obscure battle about in a seemingly obscure moment in Israel's history and to see such incredible grace from you as you pour out your spirit for the salvation of your people. Lord, if this doesn't inspire us, man, I don't know what will here. The Holy Spirit, your spirit, Holy Spirit, we can speak to you right now. The fact that you indwell us, please forgive us for neglecting that. Forgive us for not walking with you in that. Spirit, I pray right now that that you would manifest yourself, that you would fill us, that you would remind us who we are in you and that we would be motivated and empowered to walk with you. Every step, as we lace up our shoes every morning, thinking, I'm walking with you today. I'm walking with the Spirit today. 2.3 billion of us doing that, this would be a different world greater things. So Holy Spirit, you're the true preacher to our hearts. These aren't my words, these are your words. So preach to hearts, preach to my heart. Remind me who I am, whose I am, and what you are calling us to do. So Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.